The Beatles, the Beatles uh, probably don't have a lot of theological worth, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but every once in a while, you get a nugget. But of course, I, I, hear this, I hear this bit of Beatles songwriting in the voice of Joe Cocker, you know. What's he say? What would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? Lend me your ear, and I'll sing you a song. And what? Yeah, we know that song. Anybody know how the chorus goes? Got to have a little help from who? My friends. That's right. A lot of people don't know the Beatles wrote that because all they can see is that sort of uh, T-Rex, Joe Cocker singing it in Woodstock, you know. It's a good song. Or maybe maybe one I like better, probably, probably actually much less well-known, but I like it. It goes like this. It says, uh, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, born in his spirit, washed in the blood, join heirs with Jesus as we travel this side. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. Do you ever stop and think about what it means to be a part of the family of God? We mostly think about it only on a horizontal level, meaning how difficult it is to live together. We mostly only think about it that way. But if you've thought about it ever in your life, through the lens of John chapter 3, then, then it not only becomes super mystical, mysterious, and heavenly, but it suddenly becomes very sovereign. Let me put it like this. Well, look at this beautiful family sitting on the front row. And River somewhere. Oh, she's in Peter's arms. I was looking for her. She's still tiny. None of you guys had a choice to be born into your family. God chose that. You ever thought about it? He knitted you together in your mother's womb. Right? And you were, you were born, and these are your, this is your mom and dad. And these are your brothers, and now your sister. And you didn't have a choice in that. God picked it. They always, you know, the old saying, they always say, uh, you can't pick your family, but what? You can pick your friends. Well, you can't pick your family. God chose your family. Did you know God also chose to add you to the body of Christ? And as much as we like to mentally kick some people out, it's God's family, and God's the one who constructed it. In John chapter 3, he says, you must be born again. Except in the original language, it might be better to say it in English like this, you must be born from above and I suddenly get the image of God hovering over the void and then out of nowhere there in the womb of heaven is a new creature and the spirit delivers that new creature in you and you're born from above through travail through child bearing travail which I honestly have only ever watched I don't know it experientially thank God and you're born again, born from above, reborn, as it were, into a family you didn't choose. Somebody say amen. And so the conception of the Christian family is not only the idea of God, it's the generation of God. He does it. And when I get that mindset, I stop trying to get rid of believers, and I start trying to live with my family. 
In other words, I stop thinking of them as friends I get to pick, and I start seeing them as family God has birthed alongside me. And that changed. I can't get rid of you guys. So my family, and I realize my wife and children, my brother is sitting in the room, my brother from the same mother brother, and uh, they don't want anybody to know it, but all the long girls are my cousins. They don't like for everybody to know that, but it's true. Um, they don't mind being known to be related to Katie and Rachel. It's me there. <laughs> Trouble. You know, I, I've got family in the room, and my family sort of has one of those reputations. And you know how it is when someone asks, are you related to someone, you kind of want to know the reason they're asking before you say yes. I go ahead and say yes, especially if it's one of the criminal elements from my family. I, yeah, yeah, that's my cousin. Love it. Yeah, it did some time. Sure thing. Basically, I'm saying, don't mess with me. <laughs> I've got family like that. What I love about how Paul closes this letter is we see that Paul has a gospel-centered idea of collaboration and family and friendship, and he concentrates more. He concentrates more on who's in that mission than he does who is in his family tree. Think about that. To Paul, it's more important. It's more important who's in his gospel family tree than it is in his world family tree. That's pretty interesting to me. And I see in here some advice for us today that I'm going to issue. I'm going to issue by way of questions all throughout today's sermon. If you've looked at the bulletin, you've probably already had a mini stroke and you're already wondering what was he thinking and how are we going to do this? Don't worry. I don't know what I was thinking and I don't know how I was going to do this. Just stay out of the window sills, pull out your snacks, and hold on. Let's read from Colossians chapter number 4, verse number 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Our Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Father, as we open this word, give us perhaps a new vision for the family of God, perhaps a refreshed vision, perhaps a renewed energy, perhaps a, new, a renewed measure of grace, perhaps a newfound focus. Father, show us you, how much you love your family and give us love for you that we can pour onto the family. In Jesus I pray, amen and amen. So guys, 
I want to share with you, there's nine names here. Wow. Nine names. I'm going to share some tidbits about each name, and I'm going to leave you guys to write down what you think is important and to look up and go further. And I want to, I want to ask some questions of our fellowship tonight. I'm going to ask some questions, and I want them to land on each one of you as individuals. Like, Dale, when I ask these questions, I'm not going to say Dale Ball every time. But, Dale, I want you to take every one of these personal. Okay? Carson, I want you to take every single one of them personal. Carolyn, I want you to hear just like I'm asking you these questions. And then don't just settle with the questions. David, I'm going to ask you these questions. Don't just settle with it. Robin, these questions are to you. Don't just settle with them. Answer them. And the cool thing I like about questions is you don't always... You're not always able to answer them in the moment. Sometimes you got to say, well, wait a minute. i got to sit with that a while. But I really want you to answer these questions tonight. So let's take a look at these awesome people who Paul, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, includes in this letter. And God, by his divine will, gives it to us as sacred scripture. The first one is this guy, Tychicus. What a name. It means fortuitous or fortunate. How come nobody names their kid Tychicus? I don't know. He's mentioned five times in the New Testament, and he is quite a character. Let me say that he comes into the story sort of like this, and he's introduced in Acts chapter, chapter 19. Paul is at the end of his third missionary journey. And then in uh, Acts chapter 20, uh, he basically says, I'm going to go with you, Paul. Now, this was no small task. Paul was going to travel from Ephesus, where you know they had run into some trouble. And he was going to go through and see some Gentile churches and take up a collection and take it to the mother church in Jerusalem. And Tychicus is like, I'm going to go with you. Now, that sounds like a big deal today. Whether you, you know, especially to we Americans. You live here in the United States, you say, I'm going to California. I'll go with you. And you get in the car and you can, you can literally go to Raleigh, get on I-40, and you can drive that rascal all the way to Barstow, California. No big deal. If you can make it through them, them twists and turns in Greensboro, North Carolina, and Memphis, Tennessee, you'll be okay. No joke. Some of the worst turns on the interstate in the United States. Or if I say, hey, let's go to Alaska, no big deal. Get an airplane at Raleigh. We'll probably would go to Minneapolis. That's the most sensible way to go. Stop in Minneapolis, change planes, and then go on to Anchorage or wherever we were going. No big deal. It was not like this. That was not plane, trains, and automobiles. There was feet, horse carts, horse carts, and boats. Feet, horse carts, and boats. There was no, you know, even though they were under the Roman Empire, there was no surety of safety along the way. As a matter of fact, let me show you how Paul described this journey in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you all to see if you can see what word just jumps out again and again and again. 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 beginning in the second part of verse 25, I believe it is. Yeah, there it is. 2 Corinthians 11, beginning in the second part of 25. He says this, Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, Danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. What was the word? Danger, danger, danger. danger. Tychicus volunteered for this journey and stuck with him. 
I've seen times I started out from McGee's Mill to Roxborough with people and didn't even make it that far. But that isn't what even amazes me. You guys know what happens to the Apostle Paul in, in Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He appeals to Caesar. They send him to Rome. It takes a while for him to get to Rome. Tychicus stays with this dude for two years voluntarily. Voluntarily. And this isn't even all the story with Tychicus. He's a pretty neat dude, but that's not my point. Tychicus writes and he says, he'll tell you everything. There wasn't social media. Paul wasn't doing selfies going, locked up again for the gospel, yo. Isn't it neat that Tychicus could serve as a witness to all that happened to Paul? Isn't it neat that he would stay there to serve as a witness? Isn't it neat that he had put himself, put himself at, at risk for the gospel? I'll tell you, when it comes to the church in our area, the whole church in our area, that's been one of the most disappointing things of the last year for me. I don't find anywhere in the scriptures where we're told to stop obeying God because there's danger. As a matter of fact, the life of Paul teaches me that in the face of danger, you keep being obedient. Isn't that interesting? Does it, is it our call to be foolish? No. That's ridiculous as well. But there's certainly no provision for quitting because of danger. Paul had a call in his life, and Tychicus took it up with him. So here's the question I would ask. I want to go ahead and tell you. I cannot promise you that you will have a friend that will go through anything for gospel center ministry with you. I cannot promise you. I cannot promise you that anybody will ever stick by you no matter what. I wish I could. I wish I could even say, I will. I can only say I'll try. So let me ask you a question. Will you be a friend who will endure through anything for gospel-centered ministry? Will you be that sort of friend? There's just sort of this idea in our culture that we're always wanting someone to be a friend to us. You know what gospel-centered ministry teaches me is that I, my call is to be a friend to others. Tychicus was that sort of friend. He was that sort of friend. Secondly, we have Onesimus. I love Onesimus. Onesimus is quite an interesting guy. I don't know if you know his story, but he was a slave. He was a slave to a guy named Philemon. Onesimus had escaped. He had escaped. And we don't know the details of his slavery. Was it the indentured servant kind or was it the bogus kind? I don't, we don't know. We just don't know. But we know Philemon was a believer and Onesimus had escaped and had become a believer, and he had run up on Paul, and Paul says, great, now you're right with heaven, go get right with man. Wow, that seems wrong, doesn't it? The whole letter of Philemon is about Paul saying to Philemon, accept Onesimus as an equal, and whatever he owes you on the slave account, put it on my account. That's pretty heavy duty. That's pretty heavy duty. But Onesimus was there, and do you see the commendation Paul gives him? Paul says of him, he's our faithful and beloved brother. See, Onesimus, that gives you a clue into his life. He had been a slave bound to Philemon's household by some sort of Roman law provision, but now he was bound to Paul by the law of heaven. That's what the gospel does. It starts making us live by something higher. You'll choose things that you would have rebelled against if they had been projected on you out in the world. Hey, I'll tell you, man, I don't even want to scrub the toilet anywhere, but I'll go on a mission trip and be like, well, yeah, let's go scrub toilets for Jesus. Onesimus had become a faithful and beloved brother. Here's what I say, guys. 
I cannot promise you that you won't have people who will hold your past against you in gospel Center ministry. I can't promise you that. Some people will bring your past up to your face every time you turn around. Onesimus was a slave, a law-breaking, runaway slave. He could have been legally punished by death. And Paul says, you're just my brother, but you're my brother who I want to see do everything the right way. I can't guarantee you people won't hold your past up against you. Anybody in here besides me made mistakes? Anybody? I know I have. You'll know some people who will never stop letting you live that down. You'll know people like that. I can't promise you that you won't have people hold your past against you. But let me ask you some questions. Will you be a friend who won't hold your brothers and sisters past against them? That's just a question you got to ask. Some of you need to ask it in your spousal situations. Sometimes we get in an argument with our spouses and we bring up the last 10 years in every argument. I do it every time I change the toilet paper at home. I'm like, here we go again, 20-some years, and we still can't get this toilet paper thing. We, some of us, we can't start a conversation with somebody without saying, you always or you never. And in those short words, we're bringing everything into view. Isn't that tough? The Bible says anybody seen Christ is a new creation. Paul says, look. Onesimus is an escaped slave. He's a sinner who's gotten right with God. He's a lawbreaker who I'm urging to get right with man. I'm not holding that against him. I see him as my faithful and beloved brother. Will you take brothers and sisters for who they are in Christ today? What if we, what if we just said, look, I know you're in Christ today, and I'm, I'm just going to look at you like that. I see your flaws, and I'm not going to say you're, you're never going to change or you're always going to be this way. I'm going to say you're in Christ, so God's at work in your life. Will you believe God for who your brothers and sisters can be? What an incredible question. The next character we'll take a look at very quickly is Aristarchus. And if you know anything about Aristarchus, he shows up a bunch of times too. Aristarchus is a, is a really neat guy. If you look here at verse number uh, 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. My fellow prisoner. In other words, in other words, he met the Apostle Paul in Acts 19. He accompanied Paul on his trip to Jerusalem. And he is now in the jail for the same reason Paul is. He has taken up the gospel as his lifestyle, and the gospel is costing him. It's no wonder Paul says, and it's almost like a, it's almost like a tag of pride. This is my fellow prisoner. This brother is with me in this thing. I was in California. I mean, Mary Lee will tell you, it's a place you want to escape. <laughs> I was in California, and uh, my friend, my friend's nickname was the Midnight Thug. You can't make this stuff up. He loved to play practical jokes on people while they were asleep. We pulled up outside of his apartment. Actually, we're in San Jose, California, and we, without even tearing the things we, we had shopped for, into the house without even carrying the bags in, were arrested and carried away. And, you know, we had been up to no good the night before, but just that sort of no good that's only barely against the law, not big time against the law. And, and so we both are smart guys. We're not saying a word. But we noticed they carry us in through the door that says the homicide department. And I can tell you, 
I don't know who he killed, but I'm sitting there saying, I ain't killed nobody. They started asking us questions. And uh, within, within an hour, we were both set free. We had the exact same story, the exact same alibi. Things checked out. You know, he, we had said, yeah, about 7 o'clock. We stopped at this store, and about 10 o'clock, we were over at this place. And everything checked out, and they let us loose. And, uh, and uh, they told us, once we, they put us in the same room together, they said, yeah, we, y'all got in an argument yesterday morning with the guy. We said, we did. said, and uh, there was a threat made. I said, oh, no, it was a promise. I made a promise. They said, yeah, well, somebody killed that guy. And I was like, rut row raggy. Okay, but it became super apparent we didn't kill the guy, right? But what was cool was we had, we had the exact same testimony, and it got us out of trouble. Aristarchus and Paul had the exact same testimony, and it got them into trouble. See, if the gospel becomes illegal in this world, I want to be the first and, and most well-wanted criminal out there. And I would like to think that I could walk with people who are not afraid to stand for Jesus in the hard times. But I can't promise you that some brother and sister will take up the gospel ministry with you and all of its burdens. I can't promise you that. But I can ask you a question. Will you stand with your brothers and sisters in gospel ministry? Will you endure burdens with them? Aristarchus is an amazing guy in this way. He is so taken up this call, so mirrored Paul's calling that it's costing him too. The next guy is Mark. Now, yes, it's that Mark. It's uh, the Mark where we get the gospel of Mark. He's the cousin of Barnabas. His cousin's name means son of consolation. His cousin is known to be an encourager. Paul and Silas and Mark and Barnabas had set out on a missionary journey. It was the second missionary journey, and it wasn't long before Paul said of, of John Mark, that's his whole name, he called him John Mark. He says, I don't want to work with this guy. He's a bum. He's flaking out on us. When the going gets tough, when the work gets hard, he, you know, he all of a sudden has, has somewhere else to be, something else to do. It got so serious that Paul and Barnabas parted ways. They, you know, uh, it's like a church split. They wound up doing two missionary journeys. That might be some profit in that. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. We don't know. We don't know when and we don't know how. But at some point, at some point, Paul and John Mark resolve their conflict. They work it out. It, it, so much so that at the end of his life, when he writes a letter, when Paul writes a letter to Timothy, he says, man, you got to come see me and get Mark. Y'all boys, I need y'all. At his lowest point, at the end of his life, when he sees, when he sees the gospel is going to cost him his life, who does he call for? He calls for Mark. And here, what does he say about him? He says, oh, man, that old Aristarchus, that Mark, man, what good brothers. What good brothers. I love it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. That's where he tells, he tells Timothy, he says, I only have Luke. Get Mark. Bring him with you. I need, I need my people. I need my people. And look at this. He was very useful to me in the ministry. Some years before that, he says, man, you got to get this dude away from me. I cannot promise that everyone will forgive you when you make mistakes in gospel-centered ministry. Some people will never forgive you. Some people will never work with you again. Some leaders are never restored, not because they're not willing to be restored, but because entities and people won't let them be restored. There's even some crimes in our culture we just never won't let people come back from. Something's not right about that. And in the kingdom, these things should not be so. 
So let me ask you, will you be a forgiving, restoration-seeking friend in gospel-centered ministry? It's likely that right now some of you guys got something, got something against someone. What would Jesus say about it? And preachers love to quote this. Jesus would say, hey, bring your gift and leave it at the altar. Go get that mess straight. Don't take that gift with you. Just leave it right there. <laughs> but go get that business straight. It's pretty neat. Mark and Paul work it out. We don't know how. And I'm glad we don't know how because if we knew how, we would only work it out when it was just like that. We're just left knowing you got to work it out. You got to work it out. Next is a guy who's barely mentioned. He's given two names, and they don't tell us what about him. He just says this. He says, uh, hey, uh, you know, and also, also, uh, Justice, who, I mean, Jesus, who we call Justice, he would like to greet you. He would like to say hello. And he doesn't tell us anything more except to say this. It's Aristarchus, even though he's got a Greek name. And there's Mark, and there's Jesus Justice, who has a Hebrew and a Greek name. He says, these, these three guys are the guys, these, these are Hebrew boys. And we have taken major heat from Hebrew boys. But they stuck it out. They stuck with Jesus and they stuck with me. I cannot promise you that anyone will write your name down as a faithful follower of Christ in gospel-centered ministry. In other words, I can't promise you that no one will write down your legacy like Paul has Justice's legacy. You could be like Count von Zinzendorf. Count von Zinzendorf said, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. To me, that's not a bad life. But justice, we don't even know what he does. But we know Paul appreciates him. He loves him. He's stuck with him. He cares about him. He counts him as part of his team. He sees him as a friend. He counts him as family. I can't promise that your friends will remember you to others. But let me ask you, will you take time to rack down the names of the faithful friends and co-laborers you have in Gospel Center Ministry? Will you be that sort of friend who who takes an account of who God has put in your life and you thank them and you remember them. I had this real crazy friend. He's raised in um, Utah and his last name is Smith. And the first sentence that would always come out of his mouth, I'm not a Mormon. Because if you're from Utah and your last name is Smith, the odds that you're a Mormon is very high. See it on his uniform. Hey, where are you from? Utah, I'm not a Mormon. He loved Viking stuff. I mean, he really did. He just loved to read about Viking culture. And We lost a friend. We lost a friend. And uh, Smith made a, made a video and put it on our, our friend group on Facebook. And he is, <laughs> he's like 6'2 and skinny, man. Like, my arm is fatter than him. And he had put on some kind of Viking outfit, and you could tell from the moment the video started, he was hammered. He was drunk. He done got him some kind of horn, beer drinking stein, and he's drinking beer out of a horn. And, and at first, I was like, what is this idiot doing? You know what he's doing? He was remembering all our friends. And he was saying some crazy stuff as we sit around the fire and consider Valhalla. We pour out drink offerings for our friends. Now, he was drunk as a fish. But I saw his heart. I saw his heart through it all. He loved his friends, and his friends are dead. And right now, in the framework that he has to think about life, he's just remembering his friends. He's honoring his friends. 
Now the thread conversation was kind of wild after that little video, but sometimes, 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 sometimes I think it would be good for us to send flowers to the living. When's the last time you just took account of the people in your life? You didn't wait for them to, to pass on to say how much you thought of them. You just stopped and said, you're valuable to me. You're valuable. The next person we see in this story is Epaphras. Epaphras is really famous. I see time is really flying by. Epaphras is the one who had come to see Paul. You know that from Colossians chapter 1, verse 7. He had presented the problem to Paul. Hey, Paul, the church at Colossae has fallen, fallen victim to this, these heresies that are going around, this Judaizing, this Gnosticism. Paul has said, look, the, the, you know, this guy, Epaphras, is for y'all, man. He is for y'all. I love, I love Epaphras. You just glean his story from the scriptures, and you can tell he loved the church, and he loved his church, and he wanted the best for his church. Look back at verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf. Always struggling. Now, just think about it for a minute. Just think about it. If you look around this room, could you say, I'm always struggling on behalf of these people? I cannot promise you that the person sitting beside you will struggle on your behalf. And the word here is under rower, not underwearer. Don't get confused. <laughs> under rower. You know what that, that's an image of? The word is under rower. Those people in those old school ancient ships where they had the long oars out of them, and they would be below decks putting the oar out of water, bringing it back, putting the oar in water, rowing. They were under rowers. That's the image you have of Epaphras. That's why I like him so much. He's unseen, uncredited, maybe unknown, but never ceasing in his labor. You row and you row and you row and you row. He's working for his people. He cares about these people. He's deeply, deeply burdened for his people. I cannot promise you that the person sitting beside you will be an underroar in your life. But let me ask you, will you be an underroar in gospel-centered ministry for those around you? Will you, will you, will you do things that never get seen, never get recognized? No one tweets about it. Or how about this? Will you be an underroar in the struggles of the life for the people in this local church body? Now, we're going to stop right here. This is the only thing I don't like about being online. The only thing I don't like. You, you guys aren't here to do this with us. I want you to stop right here. You should see in your bulletin, I left some spaces for you to write some names. I want you to look around. Just take a moment. Look around. Do it. Look around. If your next work, if not, you might have to stand up. Look around. I want you to think about Right now, three people who, for whatever reason, the Spirit points them out to you. I don't want you to tell them a cotton-picking word. I want you to write, your, write their name down and start struggling for them in prayer. Just do it. Look around. I want to pause. Holy Ghost, come near and tell us who we should be struggling.
I can't guarantee you that somebody will row for you. The question is, will you row for somebody else in this church? Will you be an under rower in the struggles of life for other brothers and sisters in the faith? Just think about it for a moment. Who does God bring into your mind when you think about people who live gospel-centered lives? Jot down two or three names and start under rowing for them in a fresh way. Then we get Luke. We get Luke. Brother Luke, yes, that brother Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. I believe he had a deep hand in the book of Hebrews, to tell you the truth. Luke was with him. Luke was, Luke was his secretary. Luke was a physician. And we know from his writing he was a highly educated man. You can tell the difference in the kind of Greek that Peter wrote in and the kind of Greek that Luke wrote in. It, it would be like, you know, the sort of colloquial way I talk versus the technical way I often write. You can tell the difference. Luke was an educated man. I cannot promise you that you will have notoriety like Luke and Paul. I cannot promise you that you'll have some perceived idea of greatness like Luke and Paul. I can't make that promise. I can't promise that God will send really sharp people to help you. He might send a bunch of knuckleheads. Really? I had a pastor the other day who was complaining about his church, which always gets on my nerves. Brett will tell you, I never complain about my church. Never. Never. Can't stand it. I told him. He was talking about how dumb the people were. You know what I said? I said, hey, man, even dumb sheep make wool. I said, the problem is you ain't working right. I mean, you know. And he said, well, I ain't never thought about it like that. <laughs> I said, well, it's kind of a sad way to think about it. There's more to it. But even dumb sheep make wool. wool. Think about it. I can't promise you you'll have sharp people around you, sharp, helpful, successful people. I can't. But let me ask you, will you work with whoever God positions with you in, in gospel ministry? If God sends you somebody that's aggravating, puts them in your family, if he sends you somebody who doesn't think like you do or as fast as you do or faster than you do, will you say, okay, God, I'll take it. Paul got a world-class academic and the guy's being a secretary. I don't know if the greatest story is about Paul's humility and taking somebody smarter than him or Luke's humility and taking a role beneath himself, but there's a story there. I want to be known as working with whoever God sends. Then we get Demas. Demas. And we're almost at the end. He says, Demas greets you. He is counting Demas here as a, as a co-partner, but do you know what happens later on? Anybody know what happens? Look at this verse from 2 Timothy 4.10. He's writing to Timothy. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, look at this, read it together with me. In love with this present world. Wow. He goes from being a trusted sidekick here in this letter to the Colossians to walking off. I cannot promise you that the person that you are relying on today won't flake out on you tomorrow. I might flake out on y'all tomorrow. I eat frosted flakes for lunch. It's a real possibility I'll flake out. But let me ask you, will you hold brothers and sisters, sisters accountable to the Lord and gospel-centered ministry? You know what this means? It means you cannot have surface-level friendships. You cannot assume people are okay. This has a lot of unwritten stuff. 
You got to check in. You got to be real, be honest. You got to open up, and you got to give them space to open up. You got to guard their pains and their secrets. This, this is a really huge question. You got to get rid of that southern facade of relating to one another. How are you doing? Fine. How many times y'all ever said that and told a lie when you were saying it? How's your mama name? That's all one word, mama name. And then do you give them time to answer? I mean, really answer. Really quickly, the last two, you get nymphos. Nympha, excuse me. What are they mentioned for? They open their home. She opens her home. I cannot promise you that someone will open their home for gospel-centered ministry in your life. But let me ask you, would you open your home for somebody else? Do you see your home as a place for ministry? Do you welcome people in? And when you come in, do you just talk about the news of the day or do you labor together in the gospel? That's a really big question, too. And finally, Archippus. Archippus. I think it's Archippus. What does he do here? He says, hey, remind that Archippus, Archippus, remind him he's got to, to fulfill his calling. I cannot promise you that someone will remind you of the commitments you have made in the Lord. But let me ask you a question. Will you remind others of their gospel-centered commitments? You know, a question I wish we would ask more. I mean, it's, it, it's sort of weird to think about. I wish somebody would come up to me sometimes and reference, how's your walk going since your baptism? Are you still dead? Still new life? Or have you got them mixed up? Have you buried the new life and living that old life? Hey, Archippus, boy, do what the Lord called you to do. Sometimes you need somebody to look you in the eyes and say, hey, are you, are you fulfilling what the Lord gave you to do? Now, as I close, let me give you guys four metaphors. Four metaphors. The first one is pretty simple. Uh, David, you'll remember this. You, you still get some of these, David. When we were growing up, my mama would take any kind of container, like an a, a butter, a empty butter plastic container, or, uh, or, or really she'd get one of those like two-gallon or three-gallon ice cream buckets, you know, the ones, the plastic buckets, and she would just pour leftover after leftover in that thing. And it was in the freezer, and the new layer would free. It, it looked like sherbet vomit. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, if you thought about it much, you couldn't eat it. You just, best thing to don't think about it. <laughs> but it might be lima beans, pinto beans, uh, snaps, anything in that. And she just would keep, and it would keep freezing. And when we got about full, she would make what she called a poor man's soup. You can't make your stuff up. You can't make your stuff up. And I loved it when she would fry cornbread to go with it. Fried cornbread has so much grease on it, you could squeeze the grease out of it. You could change the oil in your car. I love it. It just ensures good nutrition. Okay. You know, Amy's eating hummus. She's miserable. I'm eating greasy cornbread. I feel great. Um, <laughs> Right. Can you imagine pulling that, that, that frozen mess out? I've seen the times where she was hitting that bucket so hard she broke it. 
And I'm thinking, great, soup and another thing of ice cream. We win twice here. And this is what she'd do. She'd get in there and she'd just start putting it and she'd put some really, you know, healthy stuff in there to bring it together like some fat back. You know, something like that. Might, might throw in a ham hop. And you just start throwing in copious amounts of sugar and salt until you get the mixture just right. A stick or a pack of butter, something like that. And if it didn't look right, you might pour some stewed tomatoes on that, give it a little more color and put it on the table and if no one told you, you just had the Sherman frozen vomit. You would be thinking you had this phenomenal soup. You would, I mean, you just, isn't it good, David? Leftover soup. She calls it poor man's soup. She doesn't start, she start eating these tiny meals. She don't have any leftovers now. And so I, I've bequeathed all of the poor man's soup to David. I don't even want any. Because I want the big load of vomit. Just hang on, Christina. <laughs> see, most of you guys look at the church, and you just see a mess. God sees what he's bringing together, seemingly ingredients that don't work together. He, he knows the seasoning he's going to use. He knows the time frame. See, God's, God's bringing something here that's palatable, and he wants to serve it to the world. Well, how about this metaphor? You guys ever seen those folks who paint a picture while, while something's going on and you don't really know what it is till right at the end? I'll never forget, I, I've only been to a couple NBA games, and at one of them, a guy did that. It wasn't the first time I saw it, but he did it upside down. It was really huge, and I, I just couldn't see where he was going. Everybody was going to get drinks and snacks and stuff. This is me. And I couldn't decide whether to watch him on the screen or on the floor. And I, I was like, what is he doing? I don't know. And then right toward the end, the music's at a crescendo, and this guy grabs this big canvas, and he flips it upside down, and you can tell exactly what it is. I know that's what God's doing with us. He's painting something, and we just don't, it's, it's not that we don't know where art. We know where art. We just don't know exactly what his hand is doing. I'll tell you what he's doing. He's making us the perfect bride of Jesus. And right now, we're just upside down. Or one more. I'll just cut it down to three. I, I, I. You see these tapestries. It's a picture on one side. It's a naughty mess on the other side. That's us. We're a naughty mess on the other side. Some of us are not heads. <laughs> and it's amazing how with that mess in the back, you get this picture in the front. Brothers and sisters, God chose to birth you into the family of God. God chose it. Somebody say amen. The people of God are your family. We don't get to pick each other. We got to believe God that this is going exactly where he says it's going. Don't disdain the church. Don't, don't do it mumbling. Don't do it outright. Don't do it in your heart. Because you know, if you're picking on Jesus' girlfriend, you're going to have to deal with Jesus. You ever thought about it like that? Maybe one of our worship songs, Andrew, ought to be, My boyfriend's back and you're gonna be in trouble, ain't it? That's what we'll sing as we're going up to the... <laughs> too, too low. <laughs> That's all I got. <laughs> Guys, 
guys, God's doing a beautiful thing in us. But we are kind of like an upside down vomity weaving. I just believe, God, we're going to be palatable, beautiful, and presentable. I do. I do. Some of you guys, some of you guys got things going on between, between you. I don't even know who. Thank God. I don't even know who's beefing with who. Praise the Lord. Settle it. God is worth it. Your walk is worth it. Our fellowship is worth it. Some of you guys have been like Demas, flirting with the love of the world. Our fellowship is worth you coming back from the brink. Some of you guys are walking steady, staying the course, struggling for one another. Keep it up. Some of you guys are Demas on Monday and <laughs> Archippus on Thursday. I mean, sometimes we play all of these characters in a week. Open my home one day, kill anyone who stops by the next. truth isn't that God wants us to be like these people. The truth is God wants us to be like Jesus. So we close down Colossians with a beautiful picture of the church. Beautiful to me. Paul says all these people are in this work. And we say hey to all those people who are in this work. And the point is not that Paul's a good dude or they're good dudes. There's a good God who's calling us to a work together. And Roxborough doesn't need to know that you got to a decent preacher or a laid-back dress code or great music. Roxborough needs to see Jesus through East Rock Community Church. And through our mess, that's what God is bringing forth. Can we trust him in the process? Father, thank you for a chance to just share a little bit of what's on my heart from this passage. Help us to dig in, to look at these stories, to look how... You gave new birth and new life to each one of these people. You called them to yourself. You made them into new creations. You knitted them together in heaven's womb, and you gave them new life. And then you gave them new family. And we're an entirely new people meant to live a new kind of way. So, Father, raise up East Rock Community Church. Raise us up above the cultural norm. Raise us up above our own brokenness. Raise us up to be a people who love one another. Raise us up to be a people who are on mission together. If there be any in our midst who have beef with one another, Father, give them the humility to resolve it. And Father, set us loose to be focused on Christ Jesus, not to be taken away by the scams of the world. And help us push each other to love Jesus more. In Christ I pray. Amen.